This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, my my soul is... uh uniquely ravished with the beauties of Christ today, and I sometimes wonder why I can't just walk in that constantly, uh, where I see his amazing beauty, his the wonder of who he is, his majesty, uh, and never have it dull. We live in a shadow land which is constantly vying to obscure our clear view of Christ, but for whatever reason this morning, I just feel freshly amazed. Uh, the worship was beautiful. I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, Mark, even your reading of the Word this morning deeply moved me. Uh, you have some special gift for reading the Word. Uh, we need to uh, sponsor that. Uh, but uh, I, I'm tenderized at multiple levels, I think, this morning. I'm uh, I had someone come up to me and say, I thought you were in Florida. And I said, I am. And uh, so my family is still there. I flew back for the weekend. And because we have a special conference here this weekend with some returning students from our previous uh, week-long course. And, uh, you know, being away from your family and your kids uh, see, when I was with them, I was having a great time with them, too. So it wasn't that I was thinking, oh, great, I just really want to get away from them. I really didn't want to come back. At the same time, uh, I love being here and just being in this building. And some of you know what I mean by this. When you're away from the body, when you're here with the body all the time, it is, you, you can tend to see problems and issues. Just go away for a little. And it's really therapeutic to come back and say, we have it good. This is precious, and what we have is just so beautiful and so wonderful. So my kids have been communicating with me constantly, and with all the technological uh, ways of communicating, I've had some very unique uh, communications uh, come my way. I had a cow this morning, an emoji cow that spoke to me, uh, and, and, and it was one of the coolest things. I played it multiple times, uh, but it said, I love you, Daddy. I'll play that one again. Uh, it's just... So I'm tenderized at multiple levels. Uh, I think cherishing you guys at a whole nother level, which has been a work of grace that God's been doing in me in the first place, is just proving to me the genuine nature of my relationship with God by how much I love the body. And that's been very significant in this process I've been walking through. And um, so I'm, I, I don't know how this is going to come out this morning, but what I... What I would look at this as is a early Christmas gift to you. It's like if I could give you guys a gift, what would it be? This message. And it's, the message isn't about you. That's why it's a great gift to you. It's about the one I love more than anything. 
And when I, I've been pondering, even after the last sermon I gave, and I've been covering spiritual gifts, and uh, it's been a very beautiful process for me, even, uh, to, to refer to that, to reference it, to go through that. Uh, and, but as I was finishing up the last sermon, I was craving something. And it's like eating a whole bunch of salad, and you know it's good for you, but then you're just craving a little meat, and that's sort of what I've been craving as we've been going through this time of spiritual gifts is, you know what, I just want to have a message on my favorite topic without any side distractions like, oh, and so Jesus applied to this. No, this is just Jesus. That's what I want to talk about. And so you could say, is this a gift for us or for you, Eric? It's for us, which includes me. But this is my Christmas gift to you. It's wrapped up in a message to say if I could think of something that I could give you this morning that would just remove those doldrums, blow away the fog, give a fresh spark to your soul, a fresh reminder of why we are and should continue to be the happiest people on earth. I'm also sort of tenderized this morning because last night was really beautiful. We gathered in the lake house uh, with the, the students that are here in town, and I I tell you what, it was just very precious. It wasn't one of those times where you'd cry. It wasn't one of those types of moments. But it was just a precious sighting of the tenderness, the kindness, the beauty, the encouragement that flows within the body of Christ. And uh, Philip was saying something to me this morning of that, in a nutshell, is what we understand on the Ellerslie side in our discipleship training. We've gone through that so many times. We know it. We're familiar with it. But we don't know exactly how that works in here. And so some of you that have been through our training, you, you probably have had that thought. It's like, well, well how did, I, I don't have the quick answer, but I could say that. Okay, let's bottle that up like a cologne and let's open it up. And you smell that. Smell, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Yeah, I want more of that. Could I wear that every day? Yeah, but I don't know how we do that as a corporate body. And that's... That's what there's a, a craving inside of me. And one thing I know is to be able to do that, to be able to function as a body, coordinated, it's like instruments that all need to be tuned to the same tuning fork. And so today is the tuning fork, not the instruments. Today is what we all tune to. And if we're all tuned to this, I think the other stuff begins to fall into place. And that's, as long as we're open to the other stuff falling into place, and I hope you've heard me say it enough, I'm ready for the other stuff to fall into place. I just want to make sure that we rehearse what it's all about. And don't get distracted, because this church isn't about spiritual gifts. It's not. It's not about uh, prophesying. It's about Jesus. Because prophesying is about Jesus. Spiritual gifts are about revealing Jesus. It's about imparting Jesus. It's like, hey, I have some Jesus. I want to give Jesus to you. And so God gives us the equipment to take the Jesus that we've received and hand it to someone else to edify the body. With what? With Jesus. And so I want us to remember Jesus. This is good. All right, now I'm a little excited about this. It's like Christmas morning for Eric. I'm about to unwrap the ultimate gift. Jesus is a reminder of the godness of Jesus Christ. 
So it's a funny statement to say Jesus is because it's sort of like saying he is is. Because the name Jesus in and of itself is the name Jehovah mixed with a verb. And it's so Jehovah, God, the Almighty One, remember the one in the burning bush? Remember that one? Uh huh, the one that said, I am that I am? Mm, that one saves. That's who Jesus is. He is that God who has come and donned this type of a frame humbled himself, and saved. Jesus is. And so the name itself is so profound to me. The more I've meditated upon even the name Jesus, I am deeply moved by the name. You know, even in that time, there were other Yeshua's, you know, just like other Bills and Bobs. However, the name seems reserved throughout all time to reveal something very, very specific in and through this man. And when I behold this man, when I was young, it was really hard for me to comprehend his godness. And I remember even going to the Bible once when I I must have been around 18, and it's like, okay, so I've heard people say that he's God, but where does it say that in Scripture? I don't know if any of you have ever gone through that. It's sort of like, uh, when you're talking about sexuality, you're like, where does it say I can't do this in Scripture? You're like looking for some Scripture reference that says, don't do this. And we oftentimes approach Scripture the wrong way. The, all of Scripture reveals Christ. It's not just one verse that says, oh, and by the way, here's who Jesus is. It does say it clearly. But what I want to do is I want to take the girth of Scripture and I want to just go, and I want you to see something. I want you to see what Scripture itself says about this one that could appear to you at first blush to be a man born 2,000 years ago. That was a good man. He lived a good life. He was an honest man. He was a man who had amazing powers and healed people. I mean, what a great man. He even died sort of a heroic death, not even speaking ill of his enemies, but dying with his mouth shut and he bearing the pain. And you could be impressed with this man. And you would fall far short of who he really is. He is so much bigger than that simple description because he is more than a man. Anytime the godness of Jesus is lost, you lose the gospel of Jesus. We must fight for the godness of Jesus lest we lose the power of salvation. For it is only God who can forgive It is only God who can redeem. It is only God who can ransom you. It is only God who can do this work. You remove God from that man, and no longer do you have the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ. And so I want to fight for that godness, even in your soul, in your perspective, because I have a hunch most of you would be like, yes, I believe he is God. However, there's so much working against this today, even in the church. It's a subtle undermining and diminishment of the person of Jesus Christ. And that happens because we diminish the word of God in text. Or we are ignorant of the word of God in text. And we don't know what it says. And so unwittingly, we allow the word of God in text, the scriptures, to erode, to be lost. And they are the testimony, the witness 
of who this one is. And so when we lose the testimony of Scripture, we lose, or I could say it this way, when we lose the godness of Scripture, that's God's word. We lose the godness of Jesus. And when we lose the godness of Jesus, we lose the godness of the cross. If you lose the godness of the cross, you lose the godness of the gospel. And so as a result, we must fight for these most basic, most rudimentary, most fundamental aspects of what makes Christianity Christianity, what makes us so happy, so strong, because we're weak, but there's something that changes us, and it's not a doctrine, it's a person. We are not changed by thinking right thoughts, we are changed by encountering the person of Jesus, let me even be more specific, the person of God Almighty, Jehovah, the I am that I am. When you get to know him, everything changes. The nomen sacra. Now, this message, this entire message, is what we could call out of the archives. Okay, so if you recognize something, it's like there's only certain ways, certain scriptures you can use to describe these things. This is the this is one of my favorite collaborations and workings together of scripture to say something. Okay, and in the past, I've shared this little tidbit. It's really cool. But I'll just share it with you again as a starter package because it really fits in well with Jesus is. The nomen sacra, which means the sacred name. That's Latin. Uh, in the earliest manuscripts found of the New Testament from the first to the third centuries A.D., a unique technique was utilized by the early Christian translators when handling the most important names found within the Bible. Out of extreme deference and respect, the sacred names were not written out as would be typical, but were shortened and represented with the first letter and the last letter of the name and a line above the two, or sometimes three letters. You ever seen those old uh, pictures that have a halo over certain characters? That is actually a very similar thing to what was taking place in the literary sense. They would put a halo over the letters to show a deference, to show a sacredness. Like, this is different. And... So, yes, the Catholic Church has run roughshod over these things and uh, maybe put halos on things that shouldn't have had halos on them. However, the idea in its very inception was one of grand respect. It's like, hey, if you're going to write the sacred name of Jesus, well, show deference when you write it. Don't treat it like every other name. In other words, it always bothers me. Like, uh, I think it's the King James translation, which is a very noble translation, right? But they don't capitalize he when talking about God, when talking about Jesus. Like, sorry, every time I've ever copied and pasted anything from that into one of my notes, you know what I do? I capitalize the H. It's like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, even ponder if I should capitalize the E, too. It's like, hey, we have to. It's the same thought pattern. It's like, hey, this is not normal. This is not just a mere man. This is not just a mere he. This is a he. It is God in the flesh. And so this is the same concept. This lexical technique of showing great deference and respect has been given the Latin description of nomina sacred, sacra. The Koine Greek expressed the holy name of God, the Son, as... For those of you that read Greek, you can read the top line. Transliteration, Jesus. Phonetic spelling, E-A-Sus. And that's how you'd pronounce it. They didn't have a J sound, so we say Jesus. We say Jesus. 
The first letter of the sacred name being the iota, okay? So you see it up there. It's a capital iota, which is very similar to what we would say as I or I, okay? And then the last letter of the sacred name being the sigma, which has the same sound as our S. It sort of looks like our S, doesn't it? Because that's where an S is ultimately derived from. So now I just want you to be creative and put those two together. If you take the last letter and the first letter, take out all the letters in between and combine them, what do you get? So with deep reverence, the iota and the sigma are combined together. The sigma is then capitalized. The final stroke is like a crown, a wreath, a means of capitalizing the already capital letters. So if a man could worship Jesus, his mighty redeemer, even as he wrote down his almighty name, he would write it. Basically, is capitalized. I don't know about you, but I get stirred by that. That's pretty profound that even his name, as translated to us all these centuries later, is he is. Yeah, he is. That's, that's amazing. Divine reasoning regarding Jesus Christ. So we're going to go through ten building blocks of awe. If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Bible is true, then Jesus is. Now some of you might stumble over the very top part. If, God's word, if what God's word says, says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, is true, well, you have to start with the premise. God's word is true. And so I'm not going to spend time today on the fact of defending the word of God in text and say, hey, guys, it's God's word. However, I love spending time on that topic. And I'm very strong in my opinions on that point, that I believe it is from God, and I believe it is an extraordinary, divine revelation given to men carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down precisely what God wanted us to receive. I believe it's true. So if it is true, it speaks about this one, this God-man, this one who is. It speaks about him very clearly. In fact, it speaks about him all throughout the Old Testament, too, even before he ever came in that body. That's odd. Uh huh. You see, Jesus' beginnings weren't in the womb of Mary, way back 2,000 years ago, it's before that. You see, the one who entered into that womb is eternal. That's a profound statement, and that's what the Bible teaches. Not Eric. The Bible teaches that. I'm merely passing along something to you this morning. So, then Jesus is, is what? What does the Bible say he is? So let's go through ten awe-striking thoughts. Jesus is from of old, from everlasting. He has no beginning and no ending. Whoa, this is that one man that lived 2,000 years ago? You're actually telling me that he's from of old, from everlasting? That's a big statement, guys. That he has no beginning and no ending. Yeah, he's God. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Speaking about Jesus long before Jesus came. Telling you even where he will be born. He'll be born in the town of Bethlehem. What does it say about him? Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This one who will be born of Bethlehem, he comes from of old, from everlasting. 
Oh, I love that. So speaking in Hebrews, it's funny, I was listening to my audio Bible when I was uh, doing things this morning and went over this whole passage, just talking about the grandness, the godness of Jesus was my whole uh, scripture uh, time this morning. Speaking about Melchizedek, a very mysterious character uh, in uh, the Old Testament, and therefore it becomes mysterious in the New Testament because it's referred to. And it's referred to in linking him as a priest, as a high priest, to Christ. That Christ is of that same order. So what it says of Melchizedek, who resembled the Son of God, Jesus, in this fact that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Well, most of us could actually name the day that Jesus began. It was like in the womb of Mary. Remember when the angel came down, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? And that's the beginning. Oh, no. No, no. You see, he is, yes, conceived in that womb that day. But the one who is being conceived and actually humbling himself and becoming embryonic actually is before that day. Now, when you were conceived... You weren't necessarily before that day. He was, or he is. So awe-striking thought number two. Jesus is very God of very God. This has always been one of the key things. When the devil tries to creep into the church, he tries to undermine this exact concept. Some of the greatest threats in church history have been on this point. Are you sure? Do we have to say he's God? Can't we say that he's like begotten of God? Like he came from God and he's like a God sort of man. Like God, he's the chief amongst God's creation. Can't we say that? Oh no. No, no. He's very God of very God. That's what the Nicene Creed actually came out of its way to say. Hey guys, no, no. I know all the heresy that's out there. We're locking down on this one. What the Bible teaches is that he's actually God with no beginning, no ending. He is God. So he's God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's the Nicene Creed. In the beginning was the Word. Now, some people try and be creative and say, well, that's not talking about Jesus. You have to be an idiot to read John 1 and not come to the conclusion that it's talking about Jesus. To every sane individual on earth that would read John 1, they would know that it is talking about Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now listen to this, brace yourself. And the Word was God. Wow. It just sort of says it. The same was in the beginning with God. I thought he was conceived of in the womb of Mary. You remember that whole event? The same was in the beginning with God. For in him, speaking of Jesus in Colossians, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, it's, it's fascinating because many of us have memorized Philippians 2.5. The reason I choose this particular translation is it just, it says it. It says it in a way that I, I feel is magical. Now, some people would argue with me and say, well, I think this one says it better. And, and, okay, that's a reasonable dispute. We're all arguing towards the same thing. We, it's just how it sounds in our ear. 
He does not consider it a crime to be equal with God. Isn't that an odd thought? He doesn't consider it robbery. He's not stealing glory for himself. He is God. It's not a crime. It's not robbery. He did not consider it a crime to say, I am. Because that's what he did. All throughout the, you go through the New Testament and you can see the building testimony of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Because they had three Gospels for a long time and then John, after all these years, he's growing old and it's like, yep, the Spirit of God was obviously nudging him, you need to write it down. And John's whole thing was the godness of Jesus. All throughout it, he's going to reveal something. Jesus is the I am. You start looking at the term I am in the book of John, it's all over the place, 44 times. He makes it very clear. That's how he starts it out. By the way, the word of God, Jesus, is God. He created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that one. That's how he starts out his gospel. He's going to make one thing clear. The one that you know about as Jesus, I know we have some bickering and dickering going on about him not being God. Let me clear this up. Thank you, John. That helps. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, remember that guy they let down through the roof? Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Have you ever just paused on that scripture and said, why in the world do they have a problem with what's taking place there? I mean, what's interesting is he's about to heal the guy sick with the palsy, but before he does, he makes a statement that trips the scribes and Pharisees. Thy sins be forgiven you. And most of us are like, that's totally unnecessary. Why don't you heal him and then get to that? Instead, he starts with that. And that's what stirs them up. Not the healing. Most of us would have problems with the healing today. It's like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, Is that a Beelzebub? Uh, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Did you guys see it in there? What's Jesus saying? That's right. I'm unashamed of it. I can forgive sins. (laughs) It's just a profound statement. I and my father are one. By the way, they picked up stones for these types of things to kill him. Why? Because to take the name of Jehovah in vain is a big deal. It's called blasphemy. To actually identify yourself with God as God deserves death. Who, what man would ever dare do such a thing unless he actually was? He was not ashamed of the fact that he was God. And that's what you see in the book of John. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father. Listen to how the Jews hear that. Making himself equal with God. He was in fact the son of God. Awe-striking thought number three. Jesus is the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, if I were to say, who created the heavens and the earth? Now, most good students of the Bible will respond this way. God. It's because that's Genesis 1.1. Of course, we should know that. However, do you know the Bible expands our understanding on that? There seems to be three persons in this Godhead, in this Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they all participate in this, but very specifically... We seem to see throughout the scripture that it's the word of God. And by the word of God, the heavens and the earth were created. 
And that's actually testified of all the way through the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made. Now, it's really hard to have an argument that Jesus began in the womb of Mary when you begin to study the fact that he created the heavens and the earth. You follow me on that? It's like, whoa, this is a weird one. What do you do with that? Well, you understand that that's what the entire Bible teaches. Jesus doesn't have a beginning in the womb of Mary. He's always been around. By the way, the word of God is a character in the Old Testament. You do know that, don't you? In other words, just because Jesus donned a human body in the New Testament does not mean he just suddenly appeared out of nowhere. It's like the father's like, hi, I'm your father, and it's good to know you. Uh, We're going to have a fun time together changing the world. He's from everlasting. He's always been with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made. All things were made by him, speaking of Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, that just sort of says it right there. It's not the only place it says it. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Inasmuch as he who has builded the house, we don't usually use the word builded, but built the house, has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. So we're seeing, even in the argument in Hebrews, that Jesus built the house, therefore he's of more honor. But who built all things? God. Jesus is God. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To us, Jesus Christ is a name attributed to New Testament. And so as a result, we have a hard time recognizing that God created all things. There's nothing that was made that was not made by him. Created all things by the one we know as Jesus Christ. Well, he's... He's a great man, but the creator is quite a stretch. Yeah. You see, he's more than a great man. He's God Almighty. The fact that God Almighty condescended and humbled himself to enter into that little girl's womb should shock you. The very creator of the heavens and the earth, the one, I don't know if you've ever studied the vastness of the universe. I mean, it is so vast that it causes smoke to come out of your ears. I I did a study on it. It was a message I gave on the speed of light and something like that. Like light. Do you guys remember how many times it goes around the the world in uh, the earth in like one second? How many? Eight times? Okay, so that's pretty fast. Moving at the speed of light to get to the nearest major galaxy was like over a million years. That's the nearest major galaxy. Scientists estimate that there's over, what is it, two, two billion? 200 million, thank you. Boy, how do you, you guys, 200 billion galaxies in the universe. To get to the nearest major one would take over a million years moving at the speed of light. 
Guess who created all of that? Guess who encompasses all of that? The one who entered into a womb? He humbled himself to save us. Jesus is Jehovah saving us. That is so befuddling that I I think I understand why we have a difficult time grasping these things and why the blur is just there. We can even hear this right now. You're like, yeah, I don't quite get it. We know it, but we don't quite grip it. God has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Are you guys getting the point here? This one that we're talking about made the worlds. Awe striking thought number four. Jesus is, um, he is. He is in truth Jehovah God, the I am that was, is, and is to come. The revelation of the Father. You want to see the Father? You want to see Jehovah? Get to know Jesus. He's the translation device. There's a grand mystery. Jesus has interpreted it for us so that we could actually know God through the one known as Jesus. We could tangibly interact, comprehend, see, talk to, know, encounter, share, love, worship, praise, we can understand and build a relationship in and through this incredible extension. If you've ever heard me teach on word, the concept of a word, if I have an unknown thought, it's invisible to you, but I'm thinking it, and I wanted to get it to you, what do I do? I clothe it in a word. And I stick it in a word, and I shoot it out through the air. It goes in through your ear canal, and you unpack it, and now you can read my mind. You know what is inside of me. How? There's a translation device. There's a vehicle known as a word. God wanted to share his essence, who he is with us. So what did he do? He gave us his word. And through his word, we encounter him. We know him. We understand him. It's amazing that the God that created the heavens and the earth can be known. That the God that is infinite, that knows all things, can be known by us. He that has seen me has seen the Father. What a statement. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Did he just say that? Yeah, they picked up stones. You see, what he is saying is exactly what you may wonder if he's saying. The term in the Greek is ego I may. It's actually the purest translation of what God says at the burning bush to Moses of what his proper name is. So if you translate that straight into the Greek, what you get is boom, right there. Before Abraham was. Guys, I am. That's what he said. To the Jews, it was blasphemy. He was calling himself Jehovah. He was referring to himself as one without beginning nor ending. One who was, who is, and will always be. Whoa. Abraham's way back in time. And he says, I'm before that. Because I am. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ What do you think the writer of Hebrews is saying here? Jesus Christ, the I am. That's what he's saying. 
This is how it translates. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, that's an attribute of Jehovah. That's the attribute of the one in that burning bush. Yeah, that's right. That's Jesus. That's, that's why he's the revelation of Jehovah, of the Father. I am, there, there it is, ego I may, alpha and omega, beginning, ending. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord Jesus, which is, this is Jesus talking. He's saying, I am, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. I mean, this is what the Bible teaches, guys. This is who he is. It's not me making up some cool thoughts. This is what Jesus himself testified. He was unashamed of being God. We should be unashamed of referring to him that way, worshiping him that way. So therefore, Jesus is the manifold revelation of the God of the Old Testament. So everything we know and learn about Jehovah in the Old Testament we see it in him. He is the manifestation of it. Well, that's, if we were just to take the I am statements or the Jehovah statements in the Old Testament, he's the Lord God Almighty. He's the most high God. He's Lord Master. He's Lord Jehovah. He's the Lord my banner, the Lord my miracle, the Lord my shepherd, the Lord that heals, the Lord that is there, the Lord that is our righteousness, the Lord who sanctifies us and makes us holy, the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the universe, the God of ancient days, the God, the judge, the creator, the jealous one, the Lord that will provide, the Lord that is peace, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of powers. That is who Jesus is. Awe-striking thought number five. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the Bible Brought to life. Breathing, walking, talking, healing, and rescuing. What you read in the scriptures in that Old Testament, those 39 books, you see in the life of Jesus. He fulfills it. He walks it out. That which was text is now living, breathing, speaking, touching, interacting. You see, the Old Testament text couldn't save. It all pointed to the one who would animate it, who can save. You could memorize text of Scripture and remain stuck in your sin. But when you encounter the one who reveals and fulfills Scripture, you're changed and set free from the shackles of sin. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he, Jesus, was clothed with a vesture, with clothing, that was dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. You want to know who this is? This one that you may have looked at as a mere man is actually the Almighty God himself. He is, in fact, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is, in fact, the Word of God. By the word of the Lord. This is in the Old Testament. And by the way, you're going to notice that it matches with everything the rest of the Bible says. Who created the heavens and the earth? If you say God, you're right. If you say the word of God, you'd be correct. But who is God in the flesh? Who is the word of God? It's Jesus. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. 
The word of God in letter is now the word of God in life. The word of God in law is now the word of God in spirit and truth. The word of God in Proverbs is now the word of God in person. Jesus is the law of God become flesh. Jesus is the sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbaths, the jubilee and the tabernacle temple become flesh. Jesus is the wisdom of God become flesh. Jesus is the prophecy of God become flesh. Jesus is the histories of Israel become flesh. In other words, Jesus is the word of God become flesh. Now, striking thought number six. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all prophecy and promise of the Christ. So in the Old Testament, the idea was it was a test of Scripture. I refer to it in our training as the canon test. In other words, God lays down his word. He gives it. He speaks to Moses, and he says, write this down as a memorial in a book. It's the word of God. Canon is the term in Scripture. The, The measuring rod, this rod of measurement is also a rod of correction. Everything that a rod is, is who, well, is what this text is, but it reveals the who of what this text is referring to. It reveals Jesus. He is, in fact, the perfect measure. When they, they lay down the Old Testament, they said against Jesus, what do they find? He matches. He matches perfectly. You know that what the Old Testament even says is that if someone comes in his name that is false, that doesn't match this test, stone him. Kill him. He's false. False prophets, false teachers, big deal in Scripture. Is Jesus false? Because he has to match the entirety of the Old Testament. It's laid down as a measuring rod. And when he comes, we can measure him. It's okay. It's okay to measure Jesus because if he passes, that means he has the authority of the word of God. He has divine right to rule and control. Every knee should bow. If he passes, every knee should bow. They come under the word of God. The word is lifted high. We submit to it. Question is, did he pass? Well, wouldn't that be an awkward moment in our uh, message today? Well, I mean, we have to fudge a few things. We don't have to fudge anything. He matches perfectly. He proved the son of God. He proved the seed of the woman. He proved the seed of Abraham. He proved the seed of Isaac. He proved the seed of David. He proved to be born of a virgin. And he proved to be Emmanuel, God with us. He proved to be born in Bethlehem, Judea. He proved that kings fell down before him offering gifts. And, I mean, how in the world are you going to prove that when you're a baby? How are you going to get kings to give you gifts and bow down before you? You try that when you're a baby. Never seen it done. This is extraordinary stuff. How do you decide where you're going to be born? You're in your mother's room going, we need to get out of Galilee, uh, Nazareth. We need to get into Bethlehem somehow. I mean, can you do that when you're in a womb? And guess where he's born? Caesar Augustus is like, you know, we need to just call a census. I mean, this is extraordinary. In the fullness, when Mary's like, you've got to be kidding, Joseph. Goes to where? His hometown. He's a descendant of David. So where do they need to go? Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem. They're not even from Bethlehem. And while they're in Bethlehem, kaboom! Jesus is like, I need out, and I need out now. (laughs) He proved to be called out of Egypt. You know how strange it is to grow up in Nazareth, but be born in Bethlehem and be called out of Egypt? You study it, guys. He was called out of Egypt. 
He proved that Elijah came before him. He proved anointed with the Spirit. He proved that his, that his ministry commenced in Galilee. Where he started his ministry is exactly what the Old Testament says will happen. He proved to enter Jerusalem riding upon a colt. He proved undesirable to many. He proved meek. He proved to be without guile. He proved to be consumed with zeal for God's house. He proved that he bore the reproach. He proved betrayed by a friend. In fact, not just betrayed by a friend, but betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He proved that his sheep were scattered. He proved to be sold for 30 pieces of silver in the potter's field purchased with the money. That has to be one of my all-time favorites. If you've ever heard me teach on this, I get so excited on that one. He doesn't just need to be betrayed by a friend. He needs to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And then this silver is thrown down in the temple and used to buy the potter's field. How obscure is that? Study it. His very enemies that were conspiring to destroy him are the very ones that prove him the Messiah. That's good. He proved to be numbered with the criminals. He had to be numbered with criminals. One, two, three. He was. He didn't die by himself. He was numbered. He proved to go silently as a lamb unto slaughter. He proved to make intercession for his murderers. He proved that lots were cast for his clothing. He proved to die. He proved that none of his bones were broken. There's all sorts of ways to die, but none of his bones can be broken. Crucifixion's miserable, but there's one thing about it. You keep all your limbs, which is very important, and none of his bones were broken. He proved to be pierced. Usually at the very conclusion of crucifixion, they break the legs. Well, that would destroy everything. He could have lived all of this perfectly, but if they break those legs, he's not the Messiah. They come to him to break his legs. They realize he's already dead. So a soldier, a pagan soldier that has no idea about any of these prophecies, takes his spear and pierces him. That's good. Who's in control? A mere man? I think we're realizing this is divine, guys. He proved risen again from the dead on the third day. You try that one. He proved to have ascended. Now, there's actually a lot more. That's the basic, if we could say, quick look over the Old Testament to say, did he pass? Oh, he, he passed. All right. Everything that he must be, he was. Supernaturally so. Awe striking thought number seven. Jesus is over all. King of kings and Lord of lords. The Father has set Jesus at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all the things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These shall make war with the Lamb. You guys know who the Lamb is? Jesus. And the Lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And he has on his vesture, his clothing, and on his thigh, a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Awe-striking thought number eight. Jesus is the only Savior. 
Outside of him, no man can be saved. That might be politically incorrect today to say. I didn't come up with it. Don't kill the messenger. Jesus himself, the God of gods, light of light, very God of very God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, I think he knows what he's talking about. And he says, you need a savior. And I alone, says Jesus, am that only savior for you. Unless a man would repent and turn from his wickedness unto me, he cannot be saved any other way. There is no work of righteousness. There's no goodness of deeds that can possibly erase that record against you. It's only the shed blood of Jesus that can bear that weight and that can cancel that curse. You need Jesus. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is the sign given that we must, might recognize the arrival of his majesty. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. So when this one is to arrive, he arrives with a sign. God Almighty is about to come to the earth. The whole entire Old Testament, all history is begging for this. Ever since Adam and Eve... There has been a longing for the seed to come, for the fulfillment of these prophecies to come. God says, I will come. I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I will save you. It's coming. So now, there's a sign that is given. What would God choose for a sign? For the arrival of majesty. The arrival of holy, holy, holiness the arrival of perfect righteousness, the arrival of the one who encompasses the universe, the one who holds it in the hollow of his hand can number the stars. What would a sign be that such a one is coming to this earth? What is the sign? Brace yourselves for this awe-striking thought number nine. This is so bewildering when you begin to comprehend the grandness and the majesty of the one we were dealing with. That this majesty on high would have this be his sign. It shows the intimate nature of this one that has saved us. And it is so almost preposterous to the human mind that we can't receive it. Ah, striking thought number nine. Jesus, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, he, um, let's just read the scripture. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. All majesty, all glory, holy, holy, holiness comes low and says, guys, I've arrived. He comes to the lowest people among the low people of this earth. He comes to the lowest of the low, the shepherds, the despised of all the people. And he tells them, and he says, you will recognize this, the signal to you that it is in fact the Christ child. He's wrapped in peasantry. And he's lying in a feeding trough because you need food. He's willing to become animal. Uh, he's willing to become food for dirty creatures, so that we might live. It's an extraordinary picture that's hard to comprehend. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God Himself, the one who is holy, 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 the one who has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of His hand, the one who meddied out heaven with a span, the one who comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, the one who weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. The one to whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. The one who, when he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand. The one who sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all. The God of all the kingdoms of this earth. The one who can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. The one who can set the dominions of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. This one was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a filthy animal feeding box. Ah, striking thought number 10. We are those swaddling clothes. The Almighty has condescended to be wrapped in us. He could choose all sorts of ways to reveal himself to this earth. But he says, it is better for me to go and be with the Father. Well, Jesus, I don't think you've thought this through. If you stay here, that is the best evangelistic tool I can think of. We'll just tote you around. We'll show your wounds to everyone that you're resurrected from the dead. People will believe. It is better for you that I go to be with the Father. He chooses something that we call the church, swaddling clothes, to be wrapped in. This is a sign. The Messiah has come. How will you recognize it? He's clothed in peasantry. He lays in a feeding box. What do you think the church is? We are the symbol of his coming. He has come, people. Well, how will the world know? Well, we're willing to go to the shepherds. We're willing to be that humble wrapping on such divine strength. We're willing to be food. We're willing to be devoured if necessary that others might live. You see, this is the life of Christ. And for whatever reason, you have been alerted to it and awakened to it so that you can participate in this awe-striking thing known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could you, in knowing that all majesty has come low to rescue you, hold on and say, oh God, don't take this. He says, I purchased that body. Can I wrap myself in it? I request and require of you that you give up your life if you want mine. Not because he's trying to harm you, he's trying to help you. He wants to save you. But to be saved, you need to let go. 
You need to let go of what you call life. You need to give up this one journey on this earth that you have and let him have it. You need to take this thing known as the body of a man or a woman and say, God, you intend this to be your dwelling place. I can hardly believe it. That you would condescend not just to come to this earth and be born a little baby in the town of Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough, witnessed to by shepherds. That's hard enough. But then to think that you would choose this to be your clothing. You're God. You could do this with so much more pizzazz. You could do this with so much more excellence than to use fumbling, bumbling creatures like us. Let it strike awe in you that he has chosen the weak things of the world. He has chosen humble things. This is his way. When the king comes, this is the sign. And so when we accept that, it becomes a sign to the shepherds of this earth that are ready, humble in their own understanding, saying they need a savior. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, and this is a bonus thought. I like throwing in these bonus thoughts at the end of such meditations because it really is profound. We could talk about this in a distant sense and never integrate it into the fact that this is real and personal for us. You could talk theologically about Jesus and be completely correct, but that theology is meant to intersect our life and bring about a very personal response, a very personal worship, a very personalized faith to say, I, Eric Ludy, believe it. I believe that he is my savior. I believe that he has rescued me from my sin. I believe that it wasn't my works of righteousness that saved me, but it was his work that has done it. I am clothed in Christ. And because of that, I am made fit to be the dwelling place, to be the swaddling clothes for that almighty one. Christ is in me via the Holy Spirit of God. That is the truth. And as a result, I become one with him who is one with the Father. And I am brought near unto the Father in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is. And I'm in him. I'm brought near. I'm brought close. I'm able to go into the very holy of holies, a place I have no business being in my own work, in my own righteousness, my own humanity. But he has made a way. And this very lofty one condescends to be patient with me. To not just condemn me, but to walk this journey with me. To be long-suffering with my failings, with my mental blockages, with my fears and anxieties. He humbly works with me to refine me, to, to change me more and more into his likeness. He has every right to throw this in the trash. Not just before I came to him, but since I've come to him. He has every reasonable right to do that, but he longs to save me. That's his nature. Almighty God could have any nature, but the nature that our Almighty God has is one of goodness, one of love, one of kindness. 
He is, in fact, holy, holy, holy. He is, in fact, righteous, righteous, righteousness. He is, in fact, perfect, perfect perfection. He is, in fact, pure, pure, purity. But he's also love, love, love. He's also joy, joy, joy. He's kindness, kindness, kindness. He's the fulfillment of everything that is good. And his mercy triumphs over judgment. And he wants to triumph in your soul. He wants to win you. He wants you, even if you feel blemished today, and you want to hide in a shadow, he wants to bring you into his light because he loves you. And he wants to freshly cleanse you and wash you. He wants to say, my blood is good tomorrow too. You see, this is a work of grace. It's not a demand of perfection. That demand of perfection has been absorbed at that cross, but it is an invitation into a perfecting process. Because he loves us. And he doesn't want to leave us in frailty, in sin, in debauchery, in vice. He wants to lift us out so that we can truly reveal in and through these swaddling clothes what and who he is. So this world can behold the King of kings and the Lord of lords who comes low. He chose you? Yeah. That's his nature. Wow. He sure is humble. That's right. That's right, thank you for that comment, but yes, it's true. He has chosen weak things. Awe-striking thought number 11. Okay, a little bragging, as Paul would call it, boasting. I know him. I know some of you are like, what, you do? I know him, the very God of very God, personally. (laughs) I mean, some people brag, they drop names, you know, of who they know. I'm dropping a name here. (laughs) What's funny is the world isn't very impressed when I say I know Jesus. I I know Jesus. You guys are impressed. I I know Jesus. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop, Eric. Isn't he the creator of the heavens and the earth? Yeah. Yeah, I, I talk with him every day. We're close. That is amazing. And he doesn't mind me bragging about it. In fact, he asks me to. He says, go tell people that you know me. Go share it so that they can know me too. Paul boasts. He boasts in the Lord. We have something to brag about. Not in a pompous, arrogant way, but in a humble way. To say, my God has chosen to share his life with such a one as me. That's pretty special. Eric, is it because you're special? No, I don't have a lot to show you in my own resume of why he would have done that. In fact, he loves to choose weak things. He calls me friend, brother, son, bride, his beloved, the sheep of his pasture. I know him. All majesty has humbled himself to serve and wash the feet of lowly humanity, me included. That's very special. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com. E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com.
Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.